what do I want to say? I want to say like, I can't emphasize enough how important it is to study history and learn from lessons of the past. And, um, I just wanted to, yeah, I just think that this episode is going to be relevant to our listeners on so many levels because abortion and, um, women's rights and reproduction are topics that are hugely debated in the United States today. And specifically, if we think about the experience of Soviet women and the pronatalist policies um, that the Soviet government enacted, maybe this is like a little spoiler alert <laughs> for the listeners. One of the key lessons that I took away is that banning abortion is not going to stop women from having abortions. It didn't work before, and it's not going to work today in America. So that's like one of the lessons that is very, you know, um, practical or very like real, <laughs> so to say. Uh, yeah, that came from, you know, talking to me and Akachi. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novikova and Margaret Budik. As you know, if you're a longtime listener or even a frequent listener, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. And listeners like yourselves who give monthly contributions every month from anywhere between $5 to $25 as part of the SRB table of ranks. So if you would like to support the podcast, I urge you to go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and find that Patreon button at the upper right hand corner of the website and join the table of ranks and throw us some money every month or so. So who wants to inter introduce Mie? Mia Nakachi is Associate Professor of Global Studies at Hokusei Gakuen University in Sapporo, Japan, and Research Associate of the Slavic Eurasian Research Center at Hokkaido University. Her new book is Replacing the Dead, The Politics of Reproduction in the Post-War Soviet Union, published by Oxford University Press. Here's Mia Nakachi. It's really nice to talk to you. You have this new book. And in fact, I should say, you know, this is the backstory to this interview is that Rusana uh, suggested months ago that we would like, she would like to do something on um, politics of reproduction, women's health, birth, etc. So, you know, you're, you were an obvious choice. Uh, so this is one of the reasons why we're, we're both excited to talk to you. And you have this new book called Replacing the Dead, The Politics of Reproduction in the Post-War Soviet Union. And I'm always curious to know why people chose to dedicate so many years to a particular subject. So what drew you to researching abortion and reproduction in the Soviet Union? Well, uh, there are three reasons, I think, um... Uh, that I ended up working on this topic. And the first one is very personal. 
I was always interested in the question of how women's life uh, affects economy, politics, and international relations. And when I got to the graduate school, uh, the topic I wanted to explore for PhD dissertation was Japanese prostitution in the Russian Far East in the late 19th uh, to early 20th century as a way of examining the Russo-Japanese relations through the lens of gender. A uh, very different topic from what I ended up working on um, in terms of the regional focus and also obviously the time pe period. But my interest in women, health, and gender remained. So that's the first uh, reason. The second reason is more historiographical, I would say. Um, so when I was uh, really seriously you know, deciding on a topic, um, I understood that the historiography of women, health, and the politics of reproduction was quite well developed already by people such as Goldman, Wood, Solomon, and Hoffman uh, for the 1920s and 1930s. So I thought uh, building on to these works, I would uh, look at later period. And the third reason, which was probably the most important reason, uh, is archival sources. When I got to Moscow and started uh, you know, reading materials in various archives, uh, the most important archive for me, at least initially, was the health archive. I was very lucky to find a set of documents which showed the decision-making processes at the highest level of the Soviet leadership. Uh, these are the background materials for the 1944 family law. Um, and what was interesting about this was that so many people, researchers, looked in a different archive for these materials. Uh, multiple people told me, including my own advisor, uh, but they didn't find any. Um, and what uh, the place, you know, they, they were uh, looking for these documents uh, was uh, Ministry of Justice archive. Uh, you know, of course, it's reasonable to think that they would have these materials, right? Um, but uh, that archive, for some reason, didn't hold. Let me, let me ask you, was, it, was, the, was the, imp the, the reason why people looked at the Justice Ministry, is be was it because they thought that, say, take abortion, <clears throat> and the fact that abor abortion was illegal until 1955, that they would get insight, archival materials based on women being drawn into the justice system to prosecute illegal abortion, or doctors, or I'm trying to understand why they would go the justice route rather than the medical route. Those are the researchers who are interested in the family law as family law. Yes, so um, so if you are trying to figure out um, why this family law was introduced at this you know moment, uh, the natural place for them to go to was the Justice Archive and people who worked on the 1920s law, uh, family law, and, I mean 1920 family law and 
1936 family law, they all went there and found materials. But for this particular family law, they didn't find the background materials, which they, of course, thought was very strange. Maybe, you know, they were not um, declassified or, but why <laughs> family law, right? So they were not really interested in necessarily the question of abortion or the politics of reproduction, but they were interested in family law. Do you have an answer as to why the the 44 family law was was talked about or formulated within the the health uh as opposed to the for the legal legislation being in in say the justice uh absolutely well i mean the ministry of justice would have had the same set of materials at some point i don't know what they did with them um but the reason that they were kept in the health archive was that uh, this law was formulated as a pronate lease policy. Uh, although, you know, it was a family law, uh, it was very clear that uh, the person who drafted this family law, Nikita Khrushchev, uh, created this uh, in order to increase the birth rate, in order to actually accelerate uh, the birth rate in the post-war period. The goal was uh, stimulating the birth rate. That was the term uh, he used in the document. So in order to do so, uh, the, you know, one of the things that was crucial was women's health. Are Soviet women healthy enough? Uh, and how to control abortions? How can we stop uh, women from getting abortions? And how can we support uh, pregnancy and, and childbirth and so forth. So um, Khrushchev's original uh, idea, uh, which was sent from Ukraine, uh, from Kiev, uh, was distributed uh, to a couple of different uh, ministries. And one of them was the Ministry of Health. They were asked for, uh, I mean, they were asked to make comments on the proposal. First off, I wanted to say that I would love to read the dissertation that you never got to write about the Japanese sex workers. I work in the Russia's Far East, so this is very close to home. <laughs> yeah, I spent a few months in Vladivostok, so yeah, I wish you could have done both. Anyways, but I wanted to follow up and um, ask if you were to kind of summarize your multi-year research <laughs> in a few minutes what would you say like what is the story that you're telling about the soviet post-war life as it relates to politics of reproduction well the story i'm telling in my book is really uh, how women under very very difficult post-war conditions uh, made decisions about marriage family and motherhood when there were so few men around them, so many had died in the war. Um, and the Soviet government presented two possibilities for women. Uh, the first option uh, was for them to find a husband and register the marriage and have children. And the second option was to have a non-conjugal relationship, become a 
unmarried mother and raise an out-of-wedlock child who will have no tie with the biological father. And most women desired the first version. I might say all women. Um, the idea of having a child in marriage was very, very important for Soviet women. However, the government insisted that the second version was not a bad one because the government will provide support for mothers without husbands. And this point was uh, visually made and clearly made uh, on the cover, uh, I mean, on, in a poster that I used for my cover. Uh, if, if, I don't know if you have a copy of my book, uh, but I, on, my, on the, book, the cover of my book, you see a family of uh, Slavic-looking women holding a baby, and around her are two boys. Uh, one of them is holding a military airplane. And the mother is smiling, they look happy. Uh, what is really absent in this picture is the father. The father is nowhere to be seen. And uh, this illustration uh, comes from this poster made in 1947 at the height of the post-war pronatalist campaign, uh, which was advertising government support for mothers with many children and single mothers. And so the message from the government was that all will be well and everybody should have at least three children. That was the message they, they were sending. And in fact, many women ended up uh, becoming unmarried mothers in the post-war period, but not willingly. Uh, they struggled. My book wants to tell the struggle of women who tried to have a happily married life, but ended up becoming an unmarried mother who tried to provide for their children and protect the feelings of their children will someday discover that they have no father, which, which the mothers were very worried about. Uh, in addition to unmarried mothers, I also tell stories about legally married women who also struggled to have a happy family life uh, because their husbands uh, often left them after finding a new post-war partner and um, forming a new family. Uh, overall, I point out that regardless of marital status, tens of millions of women shared the feeling of being a single mother, raising a child alone. Um, this point was you know, made by Jennifer Utrata for contemporary Russia, uh, but I would argue that it was already present from the post-war period. 
I just find all this so fascinating, the option of an unmarried mother, because, I mean, I don't know much about the politics of reproduction in the Soviet Union, so this is something completely new to me. And I wonder if you could tell us a bit more, what were the ways that the state used in order to promote this idea that this is a viable option, apart from, say, posters? Was there um, actual financial support or any other like material support to women? Uh, or maybe, I don't know, maybe something else in the media, in the movies. I don't know. I, I'm just I'm just very curious. So what the government did, I, you know, the most important thing uh, the government did to really uh, encourage mothers to, to be, I mean, encourage women to become unmarried mothers <laughs> uh, was through this family law, really, I think. And so I want to talk about you know some of the uh, you know key features of this family law. Essentially, uh, the way in which the 1944 family law tried to encourage you know women to become single mothers is by providing two things. Uh, one is to uh, provide uh, government support for single women. And uh, the second thing they provided was the right for them to leave uh, out of wedlock children, their children, in state orphanages any time they wanted. Uh, but I want to emphasize right away that neither was the real incentive for women. Uh, first, um, this government support for single women, the amount was really small. Um, to be fair to Khrushchev, you know, who was the originator of uh, this family law, uh, I have to say that in his original draft, he emphasized how important it is for the government to provide a level of you know, good level of support for women, equivalent of the amounts that they would have received as child support from the biological father in the pre-war period. So in his version, the amounts were pretty substantial. However, once his proposal went to Moscow, uh, it was evaluated by different ministries, and uh, one of them, uh, one of the important ministries uh, that was involved in this discussion was the Ministry of Finance, not surprisingly. And they kept proposing to reduce all of these, you know, support, various you know, kinds of support, including the support for uh, single mothers. And so by the time the law was promulgated in 1944, the amount was... Uh, two-thirds of the original level. And then, in three years, they reduced the amount uh, by half. So, at that point, the amount, you know, compared to the original amount proposed by Khrushchev, was one-third of what he had proposed. So, the, this support was just not significant for women. And on top of it, in order to receive it, you have to accept regular visit of the police who would come and knock on the door and make sure that the mother was not living with a man. 
uh, and you know she was really a single mother. Yes, and women, most you know, many women found this too humiliating. Yes, uh, to to really apply for the support, so they didn't. So they 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 didn't receive this uh, support. Huh. So they were they were reluctant to you know whatever one had to do to register as a as a because I I found the fact that they the creation of this you know legal category of of single mother quite interesting, but it sounds like from what you just said, there was a reluctance to identify oneself as that because of the intrusion of the state and 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 other complications. Exactly, exactly. Many many women stayed away from this support. It, w- it was too humiliating and many of them felt that they were uh, being treated as if they are prostitutes. Yes. And regarding the right to leave uh, their children in state orphanages, um, that was not really a solution uh, for anybody. Uh, there is a horrifying report uh, that was made in 1948, uh, which investigated what was happening in these orphanages and and the children who were left. And shockingly, uh, between 30 and 40 percent of babies who were left in these institutions died. Very high uh, percentages. So uh, clearly, neither was really a great incentive for women. Uh, I want want to step back a bit just to give listeners a sense of the context for this uh, 1945 family law and and the demographic crisis that it's trying to address. You know, you said already, and and this is, you know, fairly well known, um, the, the, you know, the ratio of men to women is is highly it's very well skewed towards towards women can you can you give a flesh that out the the demographic crisis that soviet authorities are trying to trying to address with this family law yes absolutely of course as you point out uh the demographics crisis was was really a very important uh background uh to the 1944 family law and post-war state pronatalism. Uh, so the Soviet Union lost approximately 27 million people in World War II. And this is an enormous number. And uh, especially if we compare this number with uh, the equivalent numbers uh, from other countries, you know, you see my point very quickly. In Germany, the loss was about 6 million, and uh, Japan's loss was about 3 million. Yes, so the Soviet uh, loss was uh, many times, you know, several times uh, more uh, than other countries. And 20 of the 27 million were men. Yes. So as you said, uh, in the post-war Soviet Union, there are many more women than men. Um, The all-union average was three men versus four women, which 
may not seem so bad to some of the uh, listeners, but I have to point out that the sex ratio really uh, ranged greatly depending on uh, where you are. And in general, the western part uh, western parts of the Soviet Union uh, was affected a lot more than the rest of the Soviet Union. And um, as of the beginning of 1944, for example, in rural areas of the western part of uh, the Soviet Union, including Ukraine, Belarusia, and uh, the western you know, regions of the, the Russian republics, there were 28 men per 100 women. Yes. Uh, so that was the devastating demographic situation. Yes. I, w- I would imagine, too, not and the men that survived were also, you know, di- either disabled, psychologically compromised. I mean, they don't come back from this conflict whole. Exactly. Yes. And women were taking care of them. Uh, to yes, trying to support the man who came back. You know, another context that becomes very important uh, when we think about the post-war pronatalism is that the author of this legislation, you know, Nikita Khrushchev, was in Kiev during the war and in the post-war period. And after the Nazi occupation ended, uh, he went around Ukraine and saw all these uh, villages, and he saw only women. He did not see any young man. And he was somebody who had aspirations for social engineering in this area already. Um, In fact, uh, in 1941, he uh, proposed to Stalin to start taxing single people with who didn't have any children. And this was accepted and became a law, new new taxes on singles, a little known law, but uh, this is an important piece of information for this. So Khrushchev thought that in order to uh, recover from this uh, demographic crisis, the Soviet Union needed a really comprehensive pronatalist policy, right? So uh, recovering the lost population becomes something that uh, was important for Khrushchev, and that is the title of my book, Replacing the Dead. I just had a side comment about the figures uh, you just mentioned me you just mentioned 28 men to 100 women and this figure is absolutely astonishing and i just started thinking about my own grandmothers who both got married right after the war and how lucky they were to lure <laughs> men <laughs> into these marriages and that my own existence is due to their female acumen <laughs> Um, yeah, just like a side comment. <laughs> well, um, may I ask where they were in the post-war period? Which part of... Mm-hmm. Sure. So my mom's grandparents met in the Far East, mm-hmm. in Khabarovsk. Mm-hmm. 
uh, because my grandfather, he served on the mm-hmm. Eastern Front. Uh, and then my dad's parents met in Kazakhstan because my grandmother was exiled oh. there before the war. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so they were lucky to be in places where... Uh, the distortion was not as bad. Exactly, yeah. Like Kazakhstan, which was like fairly, I mean, my grandfather, well, he actually went to the war, but he came back. But I'm guessing there were more options out there in the Far East as well. You know, you've, you've talked a little, you talked about the support, or at least the financial support um, for single mothers. What are some of the other pronatalist policies that they enacted to try to replace the dead? Uh, yes, so there are a couple of things. Well, actually, I, w- uh, I want to talk about perhaps three or four things. Um, uh, first, they increased support for mothers with many children um, and introduced a military-style honorary titles and medals for fertile mothers. Yeah. Uh, I actually wanted to read uh, just once the title of uh, the 1944 family law. Uh, it's it's very long, but um, I think, you know, it has some information, interesting information. Okay, so it's called On Increasing Government Support for Pregnant Women, Mothers with Many Children, Single Mothers, and Strengthening Preservation of Motherhood and Childhood, on the Establishment of the honorary title, Mother Heroine, the foundation of the order Motherhood Glory, and the medal, Motherhood Medal. Uh, So I I think the most famous part of this law is uh, the granting of the honorary title, Mother Heroine, Madgeroina, I think, uh, is probably the most famous part of it. So um, uh, the government did increase support for uh, mothers, um, and they, they introduced this new medal system. And I want to point out that uh, it's not uncommon uh, for government to celebrate uh, highly fertile, uh, you know, very fertile uh, mothers before uh, a war and, you know, during the war. And we, we see, you know, Nazi Germany, uh, did this, you know, something similar, and Japan also uh, uh, celebrated fertile mothers during the war. But uh, it's it's quite special that the Soviet Union introduced this medal system, in particular after the war had ended. Uh, that's that's quite distinct, I think. Uh, secondly, what this pronatalist policy did was to uh, tax people not only the ones who are childless, you know, I just talked about the 41 law that was also introduced by uh, Khrushchev originally, uh, but 44 law started imposing taxes on adults, adult citizens who had only uh, one or two children. So it, yeah, so even if you had two children, you are still taxed. Not good enough because the idea, as the cover of my book shows, is that everybody should have the third child. 
because only then uh, you are truly contributing to the growth of population. So this was an idea, you know, new idea in the Soviet Union that was uh, introduced by Khrushchev's uh, draft. Um, in the pre-war period, uh, there was already a pronatalist policy, but there the idea was to encouraging to encourage fertile mothers to have seventh, eighth, and tenth. Uh, ninth in you know, children, yes, but uh, in the post-war period, uh, that idea really shifted, and the focus, the new focus, is that everybody have the third child, and then we can really start seeing the growth of the population. Um, the third way uh, the government tried to increase birth rate is to introduce very complex, time-consuming, and very expensive divorce procedure. And the idea was to strengthen marriage. From what I understand, this is one of the, it, it was quite difficult to get a divorce in the Soviet Union until I think the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, um, in 65. 65, okay. Yes, yes. They had uh, they introduced no fault divorce I think in sixty five is that is that correct? Uh, what do you mean? No uh, fault is basically you know you get divorced because you want to be divorced you don't have to have a, a an actual reason like adultery or I don't know something else. That's that's the way I understand it at least. Uh, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, I. I think people still needed to present <laughs> the reason. Yes, uh, but. Uh, so in that sense, I'm not really sure if it, it would qualify yeah, as a no-fault uh, divorce. But um, yes, but until then, it was very, very difficult, involving two uh, levels of courts. And you had to publish uh, the fact that you know, you're filing a divorce case with the court in your local newspaper. That was the first requirement. Yeah, and you know every step you made, you had to pay pretty significant amount of fees, uh, and etc. So uh, yeah, it was it was basically impossible <laughs> for most people to get a real legal divorce. I wonder if um, those policies that you just mentioned were actually effective. Uh, were they actually motivating people to have more children? I mean, we, we know that the post-war Soviet population grew tremendously, but I wonder if it was due to those policies or perhaps some other factors that the government never thought of, but like were at work. Well, thank you for asking that question. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I argue in my book that uh, these policies, you know, the, the, these, you know, policy, this policy didn't work in the end. Uh, the, the, you know, uh, none of these things I just listed really encouraged uh, people to have more children. Is is really what my, you know, what I argue in my book. <laughs> um, you know, this taxation. Uh, was something that was instituted to 
uh, support the increased government, uh, you know, subsidies for women uh, and mothers, right? So uh, taxation was more of a penalty, yes. So if you're not having enough children, then you should uh, pay taxes so that the money can be used to support orphanages and also uh, support mothers with many children and single mothers. Yes, so uh, this was a sort of a penalty for not having, you know, instead of really motivating people to have more children. Um, but there was one measure which had some, uh, from the government point of view, positive effects, which is uh, the measure that I haven't talked about yet. <laughs> um, so what this formula tried to do also was to encourage out of wetlock births. And in order to do this, um, it provided different incentives for men and women. And we already talked about the incentives provided for women, right? The, the new government support for single women, which I said was not substantial enough. And the other was the right to leave their children in state orphanages, which wasn't a great option, I already said. For men, what the incentive that was given by this law uh, was that men uh, who father out of wedlock children will not be responsible for child support. They don't have to provide any uh, economic support for the children born out of wedlock. And there will be no legal ties anywhere in official documents. So that worked as an incentive for men. And I believe that it indeed had worked um, in the way the government had hoped because it was a direct financial incentive. So really the, bur the burden for all of this was squarely placed on women in a variety of aspects. Um, how did this, how did this, this really this impact family dynamics. I mean, just just to go back to the cover of your book, where you have, you know, this woman. I mean, I'm looking at it, holding a baby, and then she has two boys, uh, you know, below her, you know, standing next to her. Uh, you know, how did that change the 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 idea, the concept, or the workings of the, of the family in this period? Uh, I think, uh, particularly this part, the incentive for men. Uh, was quite devastating for women um, and it really uh, affected the trust of women in men. Uh, and I emphasize in book that uh, this was not only the case for unmarried women, but married women, legally married women were also affected because of course, uh, even if you are in legal marriage, uh, your partner can uh, always start having a relationship with someone else um, very easily. With a, uh, and even if it doesn't really affect financially, uh, you know, affect the family 
the, the legal marriage financially, but still legally married women really cared uh, about the trusting relationship. And when they felt that they can no longer really trust the man to be really fully committed to the welfare of the family, then they uh, oftentimes felt that they were uh, raising children alone. And certainly, they didn't consider having additional children. I wanted to talk about other actors who participated in the politics of reproduction. So we talked at length about what the government did to motivate women to give birth, uh, have children. What was the role of doctors, such as obstetricians and gynecologists? Do they in any way participate in the politics of reproduction in the Soviet Union? Oh, absolutely. Yes, they played two very important roles. Um, but unfortunately, uh, those two roles were often contradictory. So the first role of obstetricians and gynecologists uh, was to support sta the state pronatalist policy by policing illegal abortion. Um, abortion surveillance system in the Soviet Union was created first after the criminalization of abortion in 1936. And in this system, uh, doctors were supposed to report to the state prosecutor uh, when they saw some signs of illegal abortion. So for example, uh, when a woman came to see them with hemorrhage, Yes, um, and if it looked like uh, she, you know, had botched abortion, then, uh, the, you know, uh, theoretically doctors were all uh, supposed to, you know, call up the state prosec prosecutor. So that was their, you know, one of the two roles, very important roles they played in the politics of reproduction. Uh, the second role uh, that they had was uh, the role of supporting women's health as a whole. So, um, so that women are healthy always, and whenever they wanted to become a mother, they will be healthy enough to get pregnant and carry the pregnancy to term. Uh, so the problem they faced, the doctors faced, was that these two roles were contradictory. Because when they were doing a great job of policing illegal abortion, uh, women stopped coming to see them. Yeah, in, in fear that you know, these doctors are, you know, carefully uh, checking their menstrual cycles and and you know, trying to look for some signs of illegal abortion and so forth. So they would not come to see them. And this was counterproductive, of course, for uh, the doctors uh, in their second role. Um, they were not able to support women's health if women stopped coming <laughs> to see them. So by and large, I would say that doctors uh, took the second role more seriously in general, I think. Uh, and they were 
uh, sympathetic with women's difficulties in the post-war you know, environment and wanted to help them uh, by providing abortion legally as much as they could and also by expanding opportunities for safe abortion somehow. Um, well, having said this, you know, we, we have to also remember that doctors sometimes uh, benefited from providing underground abortions and demanding very high fees for it, right? So there is that uh, side of this, you know, the, their role as well. Uh, but uh, overall, as I said, I think they were very sympathetic with women's difficulties and interests. And doctors and medical administrators played a crucial role in making the decision to re-legalize abortion in 1955. So they are the ones you know, who, who really made it happen. So they, they, they played a very, very important role. Do you, do you have a sense of the, um, <clears throat> the urban-rural divide on this question of, of providing women with uh, prenatal care? Because I, I, I know this just from other, other stuff about, you know, essentially in villages, you don't have, you have, you know, uh, I don't know what the English translation would be, but um, they are like, they're not, they're somewhere between doctors and nurses. They're akusheriki. Yeah, yeah, there are midwives, midwives. yes, there are midwives mm -hmm. as well. Um, it, because, because I'm the way... And babki, yes, women, untrained, yes. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, the one of the, the, of course, the many effects of the war is that, of course, the medical establishment has to also rebuild itself too, right? And in, in rural areas, you don't, the infrastructure, that, that which, you know, maybe that, <clears throat> I should say, the, the infrastructure that existed... Uh, such as it was before the war, you know, wasn't probably wasn't there after the war. Um, so, you know, I, I'm curious as to if you have a sense of the, how this was dealt with these issues of abortion, medical care, prenatal care in, in rural areas. Mm -hmm. I, I think in rural areas still, uh, there were some midwives and also old ladies, uh, babkis, uh, uh, who would uh, sort of act as uh, not really medically trained, but you know, pe people who'd help uh, women uh, with various kinds of reproductive issues. And there weren't really, yes, trained doctors in rural areas in the post-war period. And so what happened generally was that um, women in rural areas when they had botched abortion and they you know wanted to seek some kind of real help they had to be uh, taken to a nearby town or something and oftentimes uh, you know they they didn't uh, get to it you know any any medical facility in time for uh, you know, real care and, uh, you know, women often, I mean, I, I can't really say often, but many women died. Uh, yes, yes, from hemorrhage. And, but, but of course, there were some 
there were many cases where these uh, illegal abortions performed by non-medically trained people in rural areas were successful. But doctors were very concerned that even when uh, these attempts uh, were successful, women um, actually had, you know, developed various uh, health issues later on. And people talked about how uh, one can become infertile um, after having a abortion. To know more about the legalization of abortion in the Soviet Union, you mentioned uh, when, when you were talking about um, gynecologists and obstetricians, you mentioned that they were behind the push to reintroduce abortion in 1955. Um, could you give us like a brief maybe brief overview of the legality of abortion in Soviet Russia, or in the Soviet Union, rather? Uh, yes, yes, uh, very quickly. <laughs> so uh, it's important to remember that the Soviet Union was the first country in the world to legalize abortion in 1920 already. Um, as Wendy Goldman has argued, this was not because of the recognition of women's rights to abortion. Um, but it was the first legalization by the state. Uh, in 1936, abortion was criminalized. And this was because uh, the number of uh, registered number of abortions was rising and uh, the birth rate was uh, going down in the early 1930s and Stalin saw this and he believed that the strength of a nation really lies in the uh, size of the population and so he wanted to stop abortions and criminalize abortion in 1936. And the pronatalist urge, which was, which became apparent at this time, is also visible in the repression of contraception at this time as well. Um, and then in 1955, uh, abortion was re-legalized. And since then, abortion remains legal uh, throughout today, actually. So through the end of the Soviet Union and uh, in the post socialist period. So that's the quick uh, overview of the history of the legality of abortion in the Soviet Union. And, and that's the thing, the re-legalization re in 55, I mean, it, it sounds kind of, you know, when I, when I read this, I was surprised because it sounds contrary to pro-natalist policy. So what led to the, the re-legalization? Yes, of course, this is a little bit counterintuitive. You know, you would think that pronatalist state will prohibit uh, abortion, and um, but of course my story tells that uh, abortion was re-legalized. And for a long time, uh, it was understood that this re-legalization happened in '55 uh, because of the death of Stalin. In, in March 1953. So this was uh, understood in the context of de-Stalinization. 
Um, I wouldn't say that the death of Stalin was unimportant. Uh, it was important for determining the timing of re-legalization, but it was not the primary reason. And my book presents uh, three reasons. First, uh, by 1954, the total number of registered abortions reached the 1935 level. Remember that the criminalization happened in 36, so 35 was the year before the criminalization of abortion. So in 1935, uh, the total registered number of abortion was about 1.9 million. And we have to remember that this was the number of legally performed abortions. Yes, and in 1954, uh, the total number of registered abortion was also about 1.9 million. Uh, but this was the number, not, you know, uh, not, not quite the same number, because this was the total of legally performed abortion, which is a very small number, um, and you know, only available for those women who had certain very limited uh, you know, kind of medical uh, conditions were allowed to have legal abortion in medical facilities. So, th you know, that number was very small. So it was the addition of that number uh, together with the number of botched abortions, which ended up in medical facilities. So the, the total of these, you know, two kinds of uh, abortions uh, reached 1.9 million. Uh, in addition, by this time, the medical uh, professionals were seeing about 4,000 annual deaths of women uh, from botched abortions. Uh, so uh, these statistics really clearly indicated that the existing surveillance policy was not working and new approach was necessary. So the discussion uh, was happening to talk about what this new approach should be. Uh, the second reason uh, that I present in my book is that there was no prospect for an amendment of the 19 family, 1944 family law, uh, which was believed to be causing a lot of suffering for women and children, and uh, particularly women, and uh, you know, became the you know, and created various causes for abortion. For example, women try to avoid becoming unmarried mother, and you know they they would you know have abortion, and married women, which was actually majority of the women who uh, had botched abortion and ended up in medical facility, uh, they wanted to have abortion because their husbands. Uh, already have different family <laughs> and left uh, left her. So um, medical and legal professionals believe that this, this law was really causing uh, abortion in some sense and, and uh, health professionals in particular recommended a number of times uh, to the Soviet leadership to, to really make amendments but nothing was happening. It was repeatedly rejected. So that's the second reason, no prospect for an amendment. And the third reason, very important uh, reason, is that 
1954, Maria Kovrigna, uh, who was deputy minister of health in the pre-war period uh, and the post-war period, uh, who was in charge of the health of women and children, uh, she became, in 1954, the first and last female all-union minister of health. And she deeply cared uh, the question of abortion and the, the new approach to abortion. And of course, she was responsible for coming up uh, with a new approach. And in 1955, a commission was created by her uh, to discuss two choices. And one was uh, to expand criteria for legal abortion. So there was already a list of criteria for legal abortion, and all of you know, them uh, were medical conditions. Uh, but the new idea was to add uh, social uh, reasons as one of the criteria uh, and, and you know, expand uh, the opportunity for women to have legal abortion. So that was uh, the first idea. And the second idea, idea was to re-legalize. During my research in Moscow, um, I used Kovrigina's personal archive and discovered that she had supported re-legalization based on the idea that a woman should be given the right to decide for herself. Yes, so she recognized women's right to abortion here. Um, she took this proposal to the Central Committee and Council of Ministers, the party and uh, the government, and accomplished the re-legalization. And this is very significant as the Soviet Union became the first country in the world to legalize abortion based on the idea of women's right to abortion this time. Earlier I said that Soviet Union was the first to legalize abortion period, yes, but this was not based on the idea of women's right to abortion. But in 55, this re-legalization re was based on uh, the idea of reproductive right of women. Wow, this is so fascinating. I feel like the Soviet Union was so far ahead of its time. <laughs> exactly. I mean, my body, exactly. my rules. <laughs> yes. You know, yeah, this is absolutely <laughs> fascinating. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like the history of the legality of abortion is a perfect example of why we should study history very closely and learn from the history of the Soviet Union and some of the people who are arguing against abortion and, you know, banning abortions in the United States today. I mean, they might learn a lot from other countries that have gone through that process already. Especially since, if I may, that the the art the reasons for legalizing abortion in the Soviet Union are precisely the reasons why it should be legal. A because you know women are going to seek abortions and and die trying, and and B they should have autonomy over their body. <laughs> um, it, it it proves both of those 
those very important reasons uh, amongst other reasons to to have yeah exactly yes exactly and that that's why even someone like putin <laughs> um, understands that uh, criminalization of abortion is not really a good idea, even though he is, of course, attempting, uh, you know, another pro-natalist policy. Uh, he, he said that history shows that women uh, always will seek a different way to control uh, their reproduction. Which is which is why he he doesn't think he will criminalize abortion, which is very surprising, of course. <laughs> Surprisingly <Yeah>. rational. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Especially given exactly. today's context. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So my next question is about gender. I wonder. I wonder what the gender dynamics were in um, in the Soviet Union. So we'll know that officially, you know, the ideology promoted the, they promoted this, the equality, right, among women and men, that they have equal opportunities and rights. But as you've shown throughout this interview, the Soviet society was highly gendered, in part because women took most of the burden for child rearing, right? What are some of the experiences of women that um, stand out from your research in that kind of respect? Some of the stories, probably. Yes, um, as you pointed out, the Soviet government encouraged all women to, I mean, you know, uh, upheld the idea of equality, yes, between men and women, officially anyway. And this primarily meant that the government encouraged all women to work outside the home and argued consist consistently that women should be treated equally in the public realm in general. But, um, you know, my book shows that in, in terms of the private realm, Soviet ideology was actually always very gendered <laughs> throughout the Soviet period. And um, the only time when the Soviet government truly promoted equality of women with men in the private realm was in the, in the 1920s when the women's department, Jena Dil, existed within the Bolshevik party. Uh, as Elizabeth Wood's book has shown, when the department was the department Jena uh, Dill was closed in 1930, this ideological project also ended. The 1944 family law, I think, was a turning point when the government took the side of man in the battle of sexes that, you know, I've been, you know, describing. Uh, the government provided uh, one set of incentives for men, another for women, and uh, because of that, uh, men and women kind of lost trust in each other, especially in marital relationship. And in my book, I use the word the battle of the sexes to describe the situation. This really, you know, started with this pronatalist policy, I believe. Uh, in the 1970s and 1980s, when it became clear that the number of children, so uh, the number of children, Soviet women, especially Slavic women, were bearing 
was declining, uh, educational specialists argued that Soviet ideology had made women more masculine and men more feminine, yes, which was causing the low birth rate. Right? And uh, Lynn Atwood's work shows that new education on sex roles was introduced in high schools uh, in European part of the Russian Republic, which taught traditional gender values for girls and boys. Uh, so girls were told to be more feminine and caring and, and the boys to be more brave and decisive and so forth. In the private realm, the Soviet Union never really changed. If anything, it shifted over time toward, the, uh, toward uh, supporting men, I would argue. Um, after reading hundreds of life stories of women for this project, one above all uh, stuck in my mind as a typical tragedy. Tatiana, uh, volunteered for the army in, uh, for the army in uh, World War II, where she met and served with a fine young officer, Andre. They fell in love and lived together during the war. Uh, but when she became pregnant in 1944, he lost interest. Um, the child was the child was born in 1945, but the marriage was never registered. Tatiana tried and tried to reconcile with Andre, and he eventually murdered her and the child. She was dead, and he remarried. Uh, the important point is that Tatiana thought she was married and Andre thought he was not. The 1944 law was on his side. If this had happened, if the child was born, not in 45, but in March 44, for example, then uh, legally he would have been responsible for this child and their relationship would have been recognized as a legal marriage. <laughs> Yes, so the family law really changed someone's fate. And this story, you know, sticks in my memory. How do you understand the, this, this Soviet politics of reproduction in the post-war period in a, in a broader, kind of larger global context? How do, you, how do you compare the Soviet Union with other places? Well, not surprisingly, a global question is a big question, always, <laughs> and very difficult to answer in few words. Um, before I present a few comparative ideas uh, about the Soviet politics of reproduction, um, let me mention that in addition to replacing the dead, a volume which I co-edited with Ricky, Ricky Solinger in, in, in 2016 explores this question in depth. Uh, it is called Reproductive States, also published by Oxford University Press. Generally speaking, the global history of politics of reproduction has been dominated by two types of trajectories. Uh, the first one 
is uh, about Western women, women in Western Europe and North America, who often had more children than they wanted in a patriarchal family, uh, demanded contraception and the right to abortion in order to gain control of their bodies. Uh, so this is a discourse of women's liberation. Uh, in this discourse, uh, contraception and access to safe legal abortion were liberating factors. Uh, the second trajectory uh, is uh, mainly about women in the third world. And this is deeply Malthusian. Uh, following this discourse, Western, uh, you know, if we, we look at this discourse, Western organizations and local governments encouraged a reduction in birth rates uh, by providing contraception and abortion. Um, from afar, women were denied the right to have a child. Uh, here, both contra contraception and abortion were mainly oppressive, not liberating factors for women. And this is a discourse of overpopulation and neocolonialism. The Soviet case is different. And it was characterized by abortion culture, little use of contraception, universal motherhood, early marriage and first births, and few children, small family. The Soviet case pioneered a distinct socialist uh, reproductive practice, I argue in my book, that can be found in many socialist and post-socialist countries regardless of religious and national boundaries. And understanding the distinctiveness of the Soviet case is meaningful contribution to helping Russian and Soviet history inform global history. I guess like, I have a more specific version of Sean's question. I wonder if you could uh, comment on the relation between Soviet uh, pronatalist policy and contemporary politics of reproduction in Russia. Like, how, how do you see, like, what's the relation between the two? Maybe some uh, connections that you could point us towards. Or maybe not. Maybe they're total. They come from totally different places. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know much about it. Oh no, that's not that's not true. Actually, yes. Thanks for asking. When I was doing research in Russia, I actually had a interview project, <laughs> uh, very small scale, of course, compared to the kinds of you know interviews that anthropologists and sociologists do. Yes, uh, but I did interview uh, elderly women uh, to ask about their you know, family lives and abortion and childbirth and so forth. But I also interviewed doctors, yes, and, and quite uh, senior doctors, some of whom actually had some memory of post-war period. And one of the people I interviewed was a quite senior figure uh, in the Institute of uh, prenatal and uh, obstetric and gynecology. But in any case, um, she is somebody, she said, who was interviewed by Putin's aide, who was formulating 
pro-Nazi policy, and this was in early 2000. I think it was 2003, and she told me that what she presented was that she considers the post-war pro-Nazi、uh, being very effective. This was the only time when the Soviet Union really succeeded in raising the level of、uh, birth rate. And a、uh, little bit later, I think we saw—I think it was Medvedev—introducing、uh, the idea of、uh, recognizing fertile families. You know, inviting them to Kremlin and giving them a medal and some、uh, cash, and so I think, you know, Putin and、uh, this contemporary, you know, Pronetlis project、uh, tried to、uh, get ideas from the historical experience. But I think、uh, what was important was that they also understood, as we we already you know said that. They stayed away from completely criminalizing abortion, but they did. They have been restricting、uh, abortion as much as they can without criminalizing it. For example, you know, advertising、uh, abortion service、uh, has been restricted,、uh, and they introduced some. Wait, waiting period. I think you know when you want to have a, an abortion, you have to wait for a week. You know that was that was an you know pretty recent、um, introduction, I think.、Um, so yeah, there has been an effort to stop women from you know、uh, getting abortions, but but they understand that criminalization is not a great idea. So th- there's definitely a learning from history. That was Mia Nakachi. Mia Nakachi is associate professor of global studies at Hokusei Gakuen University in Sapporo, Japan, and research associate of the Slavic Eurasian Research Center at Hokkaido University. Her new book is "Replacing the Dead: The Politics of Reproduction in the Post-War Soviet Union," published by Oxford University Press. Okay. Well, as we said in the introduction, you know, this was a really interesting, fascinating interview,、um, and allows for some reflection upon our our present day. So,、um, why don't we start by having you give some? Each of you give your reactions. Rusana, why don't you go ahead? Sure, I'd be happy to. Well,、um, as I mentioned in the introduction, I don't know much about this topic,、uh, and maybe that's why the conversation was all the more fascinating for me. One of the things—I mean, that's not really a takeaway—but one of the things that struck me、uh, and drew my attention is. The promotion of、um, the status of an unmarried mother in the Soviet Union.、Um, now that I think about it, it kind of makes sense. You know, there were huge losses during the Second World War, so there weren't men enough around, and so the government was trying to come up with solutions to this issue. But still, it just Growing up in Russia and just like listening to my parents and grandparents and like people around, I always had this idea that the nuclear, the full nuclear family was this ideal、um, that was promoted in the Soviet Union and later in Russia. And so, just learning these、um, historical facts、uh, were quite surprising for me that the government was was doing that, promoting that. 
kind of image and also just the 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 other fa- the other side of it is that fathers were just kind of absolved of all responsibility you know and um i wish mia talked a little more about I guess the role of the state, because I'm assuming that the state kind of took on that role of the missing father as a paternal estate that took care of, you know, the mother and her child. Because I, I have a sense that this was kind of like the model that, you know, was relied on. The, this idea of the state's promotion of unmarried mothers is, I mean, I don't know enough to say that this is unique, but it's really surprising. Um, just because, I mean, sure, given the given the demographic circumstances of, of the time, it makes sense, but it sounds something, it sounds really profound in the sense of like, you're promoting this social legal category of the unmarried mother. But as you said, Rusana, the absolving of unmarried fathers of responsibility is really striking. Um, and, and you, you know, to go to your point about the, the effects of this on family as practiced and the nuclear family as ideal, I would, I would imagine this creates a, a, you know, it, 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 the little I know of, of family structure in the Soviet Union in the post-war period and even extending to the present, um, it really is striking to me um, how different it is perhaps as a result of this family law of 1944. That's what I started wondering too, you know. Um, I remember a few years ago when they, when they started um, – when the repressions against gay couples and gay families started in Russia, um, there was this meme um, circling around on the web, kind of like, oh, uh, same-sex families have been around for a really long time, and there's a picture of a grandmother, a mother, and a baby. You know, this idea that, (laughs) well, actually, fathers were never there, and, you know, mothers, grandmothers were helping raising their grandchildren. And so when we were talking with Mia about this kind of missing father or, like, the father being absolved of all responsibilities, I started to wonder, like, whether this law might have kind of promoted (laughs) the culture of, like, same-sex families, like intergenerational same-sex ties between women. It seems also, like, Rusana, you started by saying it didn't really take. Like, the nuclear family is still the ideal. People still, like, no one wants to be a mother alone having to rely on their family. They Right, but I mean, you might strive for the ideal, but then the reality that you live in might be very different. You know, the image that is promoted by the state today is very different from what happens on the ground with like the divorces skyrocketing and, you know, single mothers everywhere. And as you noted, Mia and Mia said herself, uh, it didn't work. <laughs> you know, these... These policies, the image, the the ideal that the state was trying to create is the, did not create the dream. It didn't, like, change the internal dream of the woman. You know, it didn't, like, change the values. It didn't make anyone want to be alone. 
However, this this uh, interview and the book itself really connects to other interviews that we've done on issues of masculinity uh, and femininity in the post-war period. And I can't help wonder how this is another piece to what happened to contribute to the sense that masculinity was in crisis and post-war Soviet Union. Isn't that fascinating? I really clung, when she said that, I really clung to that statement that women became more masculine, men more feminine. That's such an interesting... Or, yeah, and that's a, and that's a weird theme. Like, there, in some of the scholarship that's being done, has been done on uh, masculinity in the post-war period, a lot of it is focused, pointing to this issue, there's a, there's a sense of a crisis, and then there's a, a attempt to get a hold of it. And one of the problems is like this feminization of men, both because A, there's not a lot of them, B, because of, you know, Soviet Union moving into a more post-industrial economy where you have more, you know, less of this kind of idealistic working class factory worker image and more to the scientist who sits behind a desk or a white collar worker. Um, and then and then there's the issue of like a generation or two generations of men raised solely by women. And I think about my family. My grandmother was raised by a single woman. My boat, my grandmother then was a single mother raising two kids alone. Then my mother was a single mother uh, with her child in Russia. So it, 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 it carries, <laughs> you know, that experience really carries. And also, by the way, all of the men that were the fathers of their children did not help them. Mia's research shows true. There was no there was no help by them and there was very little help by the state. My mom said one time she didn't have enough money or her mom didn't have enough money to get her a coat. And so the state bought a coat for her when she was a young girl. And that was like basically it. Any other takeaways? I have another takeaway, if you don't mind. So I, I am fascinated by um, the biopolitics of this all, of, of all of this. And, and by that, I mean how the the women women's bodies and this is of course is not unique to this is a modernity thing this is a modern state thing doesn't really it's not particular to the soviet union by any shape or form however it's still fascinating to me how the body the women's bodies becomes a site a political site a site for surveillance a site for discipline a site for welfare a site for the state legality trying to regulate both in terms of, say, making abortion illegal, but also abortion legal. It's the women's bodies become the purview of the state and then a bunch of other institutions, whether they be medical, legal, police. Um, and this, to me, is really a sign of this puts, in my view, this puts the Soviet Union in very large company. <laughs> because you can find similar practices in other places in the 20th century, regardless of ideology and economic system. Um, and that, that, is, that is something, and, and here I'm not trying to place any kind of good, bad, moral, immoral thing on it. I'm, I, just, I just find how, particularly around the issue of surveillance of the body, 
it, it's a it's a topic that fascinates me continually, and this is just another example of that. I mean, how women's health defines uh, the success of the state in the way. I mean, we women's bodies define the the yeah the population. And and I think that this also the 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 strive for women's and this example women's bodily autonomy is in a way you have to break the bond you have to break the complexities of modern life in and of itself so i was talking to my mom yesterday and she was saying that her first husband uh was his mother was matgiraina she got the medal she had 10 kids and he was one of them and uh she was telling me about how that like impacted his childhood, how, how she got all this help. She had this, she was so honored <laughs> and it was something that she was like really proud of. Um, and I'm thinking about that in conjunction with you're saying that you have to break the norms, you uh, societal norms. And I wonder if, yeah, yeah. Institutions for sure. Institutions make sense, but it's also, it's so unclear to me, like the feminist path, you know, the past, the path for women's rights, because you think in one sense, yes, uh, well, of course, I think it goes, I, I will, I believe that women should have reproductive freedom, we, you know. Um, however, the one of the lessons I took from this interview, actually, is that my concept of feminism is very American. And uh, the way that I conceptualize American, uh, the way I conceptualize feminism feels very American, this kind of um, liberal, there's so uh, there are other politics involved, there are other questions that that fit into the feminist category that are not having to do with with the purely with the basic fundamental female experience they're also it feels like to be a feminist you you have to f be a capitalist you have to be you have to want to work you have to want to you know be be strong in this i disagree no, but 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 this is just one side of the story. I think like feminism is not really about choosing not to have children and like working and uh, being like a man. That's the type of feminism that I think was left in the 80s, right? Break the ceiling, blah, 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 compete with men. I think today most feminists would understand that it's it's about the freedom of choice. Like, if you want to be a homemaker and have 10 kids and, I don't know, um, be financially dependent on your husband, uh, I don't know, and spend your time at the gym or, I don't know, nail salons, whatever. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, a typical, stereotypical, like, picture of a homemaker. You want to do it? I mean, it, it, it's okay. It's fine if, if that's the kind of life that you want to lead. But like maybe others don't want to do that. Others want to go to work and like want to be child free and want to like travel, blah, blah, blah. I feel like it's all about the choice and like the fact that no other people or no state or no kind of apparatuses can impose any specific 
lifestyle or any like choices on you? I'd like to respond to that because I I agree. I think that that's uh, that should be the goal. But I think there's a difference between recognizing that that's that's the should versus the uh, versus like what is the should that is internalized. And I think that there's still like a whole lot of guilt. I feel a lot of guilt personally, as someone who's always been like dream, never really grew up dreaming of getting married and having kids. And, and then you start asking yourself these questions and, and I'm feeling shame for, for considering uh, an alternative lifestyle outside of a career, outside of professional. And so that's like, I think, uh, reflection of how I've been socialized and like my own concept of what female empowerment is and something that you know I think a lot of professional young women are struggling with today because of the feminism that we were raised inside of I think so well thank you thank you for your for the interesting conversation and and your perspectives on this interview um, from both of you so as you know, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novikova and Margaret Budik. And the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. And of course, as always, we're happy if you share this podcast on social media and tell your friends and family about it to get them to listen. And feel free to drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or at the srbpodcast.org and let us know what you think. Uh, and always, you know, as I've been saying the last couple of episodes, you know, we'd love to have listeners to send in audio testimonials. We've gotten one or two, but we'd love to have more to play on the podcast. You can either record, a, you know, a pitch to help us get more support or just some kind words about the podcast. Or if you have a question um, you know, that we can answer on the show, we'd ha be happy to do that. So record something short. It's very easy. You could do it on your smartphone. And you can email it to info at srbpodcast.org. That's info at srbpodcast.org. And as always, we'd love to have your support. The SRB Podcast is a nonprofit educational endeavor that relies on the support of individuals and educational institutions to keep this completely free without any advertisements. So please help us keep it that way by joining the table of ranks and becoming a monthly patron. So until next time, bye.